In the end of last year, I had the opportunity to talk to Angela Mayer, co-founder of the advertising agency Double Denim, who have created award-winning campaigns focusing on the female economy. We had a chat about the time that she had to be rescued from a sailing boat, what it means to be a feminist, and much more. Tag along! Tell us, tell us a bit about who you are and your background. So my name's Angela Meyer. I hail from Palmerston North, apparently the shittest town in New Zealand. I am one of four girls. I'm the eldest of four girls. Um, I grew up in quite a religious household, a Catholic household, a feminist Catholic household. And I uh, have lived all over the world. I escaped from Palmerston North quite young and went to Wellington and went to university there and studied theatre and film. And then from there moved to Melbourne, Japan, London, Bangkok. Um, Wow, you've been all over. (laughs) Yeah, I've spent, I mean, I'm a Sagittarian. Um, which, if you get into that stuff, is the sign of the traveller and the adventurer, and I've always really resonated with that. And I um, I get a lot of pleasure from connecting and collaborating, and so theatre for me was, and still is, a really big part of how I like to work, and I really like kind of mixing art and culture to create a really interesting product or service or way of marketing something Mm. Um, and I did a lot of I've worked in visual arts I've worked in writing and publishing I've published a book I've um, sailed across the ocean (laughs) yeah I've done yeah you've published lots of stuff yeah yeah and and I suppose when I've reflected on that um you know, I started a dance troupe. I, I reflect on what the kind of through line is, and it is it has always come down to really wanting to help women understand how ace they are. Mm. Everything um, has always had quite a feminist agenda. Yeah, yeah. Either consciously or unconsciously. <laughs> so tell us a bit about the sailing that you did with your husband and yeah. newborn baby. Yeah, so um, my husband, I I married a man who um, who had been a bookseller. He'd run a, um, a second-hand bookstore down in Christchurch for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we met and fell in love. And he was sailing around New Zealand at the time on his yacht, which totally played to my sense of adventure. And he said uh, – and then I got pregnant and um, – we were like, well, we're still going to go on this big adventure. So our plan had been we bought a yacht in Aruba in the Caribbean, a cheap yacht there, as much as we could afford, and we did it all up and set sail from there to Colombia and then through Colombia into um, the Panama, into Panama through the Panama Canal and then out, out 
into the Pacific Ocean. And wow. our goal was to get to Brisbane and live on the poles in Brisbane and live in Australia and then spend time you know, sailing. We were yeah. going to be a sailing family. Our son was one when we left and he turned two um, whilst we were sailing. And the sort of day that he turned two, we ended up finding ourselves in incredible in an incredibly dangerous situation off the coast of Ecuador where our boat started taking on board water. The head sail blew out. The engine stopped working. Our comms were down. We, um, yeah, it was really, it was something else. Um, it was very stressful. It was very scary. And we realized that we couldn't make a landfall. So after much sort of deliberation and realising that if we put on our EPIRB that would be the end of the dream, we um, we had to, you know, deploy our EPIRB and then we waited. And it was probably the most agonising couple of days of my life where we, you know, we had our emergency life raft deployed and... Uh, yeah, yeah, I just remember kind of being on board. We still had to kind of do watches. We had to keep, you know, keep on some kind of course. And um, we ended up being helped by the US Coast Guard. Mm. And I remember, first of all, this big Hanover jet, Hanover jet came over and they were like, are you the yacht experiencing difficulties? And I was like, yes, yes, we are. And then um, sort of over the sea came the Zodiac with these men who were the most beautiful looking people I have ever seen. It was like out of a scene of a film. You know, they're like square jawed and clean cut and all of this. And they beautiful were just like, skin. yeah, I yeah. was just like, what is this? <laughs> and my initial thought was, oh my God, I better tidy up the yacht. <laughs> Um, and I had Dash on my knee, my son, and um, was just, you know, like, was quite, you know, quite traumatised at this point. And, uh, yeah, so they, they arrived and they were like, permission to board, ma'am. And I was like, yes, just come on. And and we gave them our passports. We had to show our passports. And they'd clocked that Dash, it was had, had been his birthday the day before. And they, you know, they arrived and, you know, they were like, no, you're it was kind of gratifying because we were like, we cannot get this motor to start. And they brought their engineer and they were like, I can't get this motor to start. So, I mean, there was some kind of um, validation and that like we weren't stupid. It was just yeah. like, and they couldn't figure out what was going on and where the water was coming from and all of this sort of stuff as well. And um, yeah, so they took Dash and I off and took us to this, the big boat, the cutter there, the US Coast Guard cutter. And, um, and, you know, we hadn't showered for weeks, you know, we'd been at sea for a long time and Dash was still, you know, drinking milk and, you know, and there were nappies everywhere. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a pretty basic scene there. And we got into the captain's cabin when we got on board and I was... I was just kind of in shock, really. I didn't mm. really know what was going on and I had Dash on my hip. And then the door opened and this man walked in with a cake and all the officers were standing around him and they sang happy birthday oh no. really quietly <laughs> to Dash so as not to freak him yeah. out. And he just went, thank you very much. And I just went, whoa. Oh, and I so just beautiful. cried and cried and cried. And then... Um, 
and was just like totally overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And then they said, oh, come on, ma'am, let's, you know, because it's all like permission to board, ma'am, and, you know, yes, ma'am, and all this. I'm like, well, my God, I'm going to need for you to put on your life vest, ma'am, and stuff like that. And I was like, yes, sir. Um, And we went down to the mess hall and um, they gave me a plate of bacon and eggs and I'm – Vegetarian, <laughs> but after 25 years uh, in the middle of the ocean, after they'd rescued me, I felt I didn't really need to say, "Excuse me, I've got dietary requirements." And I ate the bacon; it was bloody lovely. <laughs> yeah, you had bacon since. Uh, yeah, I have occasionally. <laughs> yeah, my son's like, "Aren't you vegetarian?" I'm like, "Well, you know, <laughs> bacon doesn't count." Sometimes. Um, no, actually, I'm more vegetarian than not. But it was just one of these things where I was like, "Wow, this is a really big moment in my life." <laughs> On so many levels. Oh, man. Yeah. And then we got back to Panama and um, I was talking to my son and my husband and we were in this kind of like little mall, well, not little mall, in this big mall, and a woman overheard us and she said, oh, are you from New Zealand? And I went, yeah. Yeah. I am, and she was also an expat. She lived in Panama with her husband, and she took us in, which was amazing, and looked after us, and she became like our sort of Panamanian mama, and we ended up looking after their mansion over there. Do you still keep in touch with them? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. she's amazing. Jan and David, like, literally saved our lives. And then um, I'd been writing a blog about it, and, you know, up until this big drama, you know, it was fine, it was an okay blog, and then this drama happens, and then everyone's reading it. Um, You know, it's a good story. And and then I got a book deal with um, Random House, so then I got the opportunity to write about our adventure. Um, And they also gave me an advance, which meant we were able to... (laughs) get tickets to come home. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you know, that, that's been a long period of kind of grief really and depression for my husband and, you know, really redefining, well, you know, what is our, what are our lives like now and what does that mean and how do, how do we kind of fit into, you know, how, does, how do we work as a family because this was never going to be our future. We always thought it would be something different. Mm. Yeah. You also run a, or started a dance group, right? Yes, yeah, I when I first got back from living in the UK, I arrived back in New Zealand. My father was ill at the time, and I kind of got back to New Zealand thinking I'd just stay for a couple of months. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, I'd always wanted to be a dancer, but I'm incredibly uncoordinated and have no body memory. But, you know, I've always been quite good at comedy as well. So um, I was working, I, I took a job working as a producer at um, for Young and Hungry, a festival down there uh, in Wellington. And my production manager and I, Rosie, we were painting the Bats Theatre back from white to black, you know, and we, you, you just have to do it. And so it was like four o'clock in the morning and we put on some 80s music and then just ended up dancing, coming up with these hilarious moves. And I was like, I think we need to start a dance troupe. And she was like, <laughs> yes, let's call it, you know, Real Heart and Bitches. And we're like, yes, let's do it. And then we sent out an email and um, the first class or the first meeting um, we had, there were like 50 people there, or people we didn't know. We were like, hmm, okay, there's something in this. And uh, it's grown. Um, it 
yeah, we've done sold out hit dance shows. We've broken the world, broken the world record for the largest synchronized dance routine wow. the world has ever seen to Bon Jovi's classic bogan anthem, You Give Love a Bad Name. Um, there's a Melbourne troupe that's still going strong after they celebrated their 10 year anniversary last year. So we're up to, I think, about our 15th year. Are you still dancing? Yeah, we know? do. We dance mm. um, once a month now. It used to be every Saturday. Um, but, you know, people started having children. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Saturdays got filled with sports and other yeah, activities. And, yeah, and then I went sailing. And yeah. I think, you know, we, we sort of did five years really intensive. And we always, one of our mottos was more is more, but also leave them wanting more. Yeah. So right. we kind of left them wanting more. And Rosie, um, she's a nurse, so her schedule's pretty crazy. And I, I had Dash and others had started having children. And it just became more difficult to organise um, everybody. But it's an amazing community and full of men and women from across so many different um, spectrums. And the sort of thought behind it was always what you lack in technique, you make up for in passion. And when I reflect on it, it was about body positivity before that was a kind of a term. And we would literally spend You know, it was it's Saturday afternoons for two hours, having a whole group of people tell you how bitching you looked in a in lycra. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah. And plus, you danced and you just laughed. We laughed so much. Like we still have this great comedy that happens the whole time. That sounds like so much fun. It was. It, it is great. You know, yeah. it's a it's a fantastic concept and. Um, I I cherish it. I really cherish it. Yeah, and it feels like it breaks down that barriers too and take out the pressure that people might feel that, you know, yeah. I can't dance because, you know, I'm not pretty enough or I don't. I'm not thin enough or something. Exactly. It's like, yeah. no, bring your booty over here. Mm, love it. And, you know, we're getting a bit older <laughs> and it's like, oh, I don't know if I'll do the floor work on that one. It's, it's a bit <laughs> tricky to get up or something, you know. <laughs> and But we've always had lots of different ages yeah. right from when we started and um, that's fine. It's It's great. And we're performing. Our next performance is at a 50th birthday party. Um, a friend of it or one of the key members, her husband's turning 50, and um, so we're working on a routine. We did actually send a routine to the Prime Minister when she was having Neve. Um, yeah. We sent her our amazing routine to Salt and Pepper's Push It, Push It Real Good. <laughs> she said thank you. <laughs> That's good. You remember that for sure. <laughs> Kept it going. Push it real good. Yeah. <laughs> What's not to love, you know? <laughs> Middle-aged woman in Lycra. That's so funny. Dancing for you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So um, what does it mean to be a feminist in today's world? And how would you describe it? Well, that is the big question, isn't it? I mean, I think of feminism as... Um, about compassion and about kindness and about I can't really understand when people say they're not a feminist because mm. I'm like do you believe in equality do you believe that everyone has a, an opportunity yeah. or should have the opportunity to um, be successful in whatever way they they deem success to be Or do you think that some people should be more successful than others based on the colour of their skin or their gender? 
So I'm, I'm always quite surprised when people say I'm not a feminist. Yeah. I'm like, what is the problem? Do you find that men have problem calling themselves a feminist? Oh, God, yeah. But I don't really worry about uh, – I mean, I, I've just said, like, I can't really understand why people would, would, would be very like, oh, don't call me a feminist. But I don't really care whether people call themselves a feminist or not. Like, I will challenge some – you know, there's definitely um, some older women who – uh, I suppose still very much kind of steeped in a patriarchal attitude. And whilst they might have had a, a moment where they've started to understand that actually, wow, there is another way of being, it's still very difficult for them to understand that or to separate the idea that feminism does not mean man-hating. Mm. And I think that's really challenging for a lot of women. And I have challenged some women and gone, it's a word, it's a concept. It's not, I hate men. That is not what feminism means. Um, it's not about burning our bras, which actually never happened anyhow. But, you know, it's not about that. It's about equality. It's about justice. It's about fairness. It's about compassion. And I do know a lot of men who call themselves feminists. And I know a lot of men who find that incredibly challenging. Mm. And they would never call themselves a feminist. And they're still really trying to uncover or discover where their place is in the world if it means that if, if equality, if they believe in equality, where do they fit in? And they're really nervous about losing any sort of power. Mm. Yeah, do you think that's what's scarest them most? Losing their power or...? I mean, everybody's afraid of change and where they, you know, how they're going to be impacted. Mm. And whilst it's very easy to say, I'm not a racist or I'm not sexist or all of these things, when you're actually asked to do something about it and to demonstrate how you're not or to be or to call out somebody else or call in somebody else and share with them that actually that's sexist behaviour, etc. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of critical thinking because you are going to be attacked because people, of course, are defensive. Mm -hmm. So unless you've done the work and feel like you can articulate that clearly in a way that resonates for you, it's very difficult for people to make those calls. Mm -hmm. And I know that for myself sometimes I don't say anything because I know that with this particular person... It wouldn't matter. It's or, not yeah. going to... It's just... Too it's too much energy or it's just not going to work. But then I really have to take myself in hand and say, well, if, if these are my beliefs, then I have to really believe them and I have to do something about them you know I'm I'm so this is what I do for a job yeah you know? exactly. so I completely understand for a lot of other people it's really difficult to do that so what what advice would you give to someone that find that really difficult just start small you know there's a lot of we've been doing a lot of work recently about cognitive behavior change so this is when you have the aha moment and we do a lot of work at Double Denim around this and trying to create an environment for someone to have an aha moment where they're like, oh, women are actually smart or whatever it is. And what happens there is that your brain goes, oh, okay, that's a synaptic connection that I've made and that's really exciting. But what needs to happen to have any sort of behavior change is that you need to practice that a lot. 
So often people will be, often pe- people come to it because either their daughters or their wives or a significant woman in their life has experienced some kind of discrimination and they never knew that this might happen. So I heard of a recently, one guy contacted us and we were talking and he said, I had no idea that women felt so afraid walking home and alone at night. And I was like, what the hell do you mean? Of course we do. Because I just didn't, I just didn't know. And you know, there were various other things. So his big aha moment came when he imagined himself in the shoes of women and his daughter, he's got a six year old daughter. So he was like, oh my God, she's growing up into this world and I have to socialize her about all these things. And his partner was like, I've already started with the socialization of, you know, keep yourself safe, my darling daughter. And he just, you know, it was not something he'd ever thought about. And then he's gone, well, how do I, what can I do? How can I use the privilege that I have as a white man in this world to make it better for you? And that's where it's kind of like, well, you need to start speaking up. You need to be the person who advocates for us to have a seat at the table. We, we need your help because it's not a woman's problem. It's actually a male <laughs> <Everyone>, problem. <yeah. laughs> you know, it's like we can't do this by ourselves. Um and I suppose that for some people, there's a kind of a sense of like, what, what are they motivated by? Are they motivated by being congratulated or are they motivated by something else? It's like anybody really. It's kind of you have to figure out what their motivation is. And some people like to be like thanked and praised and others are just like quietly doing it. And yeah. they've got the courage of their convictions and are happy to do that. Yeah. Where do you find your um, inspiration and creativity? You used to do a lot of dancing, but not doing that as much now. What's inspiring you? Well, kind of everything. Conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actually, I get a lot of inspiration from the work that I do with Double Denim. And what I love about that is we'll get a client with a particular problem. And then we have to call upon all of our skills, the analytical skills, the creativity, to come up with something that's new, that's going to get cut through, that's actually going to solve a problem and do what it needs to do. So I get a huge amount of um, satisfaction and inspiration from that process. I really enjoy collaboration um, and I really enjoy working with a diverse group of people. And there's always something that kind of sparks you know, when you're, when you're having that creative moment and you're like, oh, yeah, we could do this. What about that? And let's just see where that goes. And you follow that that thread for a while and you're like, that's, oh, my God, yeah, that's brilliant. How far can we push it? I'm always thinking to myself, it's like, this is good, but how could it be great? Like, how could we, how much further could we push this idea for it to be really great? Where did the idea to start Double Den and come from? Um, Anna, my business partner, Anna Dean, my business partner and I had worked together at the City Gallery down in Wellington for a while and we'd worked on various projects together over the years and we were both kind of party animals and had a lot of, I suppose, um, enjoyment and creating kind of events and experiences for people. Anna's certainly an incredible event organiser and creator and I was working at the council down there and had a ter- you know had this amazing job loved it great team but just got bullied out gender bullying it was bullshit and I just kind of went nah I'm out I'm done and my father passed away and you know it was one of those moments where I was just like what am I doing with my life I turned 40 yeah. all of those change. things yeah. and walked across 
the Civic Square from my office to where Anna was working at the gallery and I was like, you know how we talked about starting that thing? We kind of have to because I've just quit my job. And we, <laughs> and we started a month later. Wow. And it's been going four years now yeah. and it's been, a, it's been a wild ride. It's great. I love it. It's challenging. It's really hard um, running your own business and working in the field that we're in in terms of like really being a niche around female focus campaigns and strategies um, and using the data and the research that we've done into the economic and emotional lives of New Zealand and Australian women and really building that into something um, that businesses can understand and they're not too afraid of. That's great. Mm. That's really good. So you guys talk um, a lot about the 28 trillion economy. Mm-hmm. Trillion dollar female yeah. economy. Yeah. yeah. Could you explain what that is for someone that doesn't know? So globally, the the global economy in terms of purchasing um, is, I think, at about $36 trillion. I think that's right. And women actually account for $28 trillion of that. So essentially women buy everything. This is not a niche. <laughs> this is the market. Yeah. And... We really want to hammer that point home. So when we find that businesses don't have a female-focused strategy, I'm like, you're missing out on, you know, so much money. If And to be honest, often that is the motivation. Yeah. So I'm like, whatever gets us in there. Because once we're in there, then we kind of go, okay, we're going to do a campaign. And we have our own set of criteria around how we do a campaign. So we're always thinking about diversity. We're always thinking about what are other ways that we can represent women that are much more in line with how women see themselves. Um, and if the, if the lever that we have to pull is that you'll make more money because women buy more, so be it. But, you know, we've definitely got a feminist agenda across everything we do, whether it's obvious to our clients or not. Um, And what we also found is when we started kind of uh, trying to quantify women's economic value across Australia and New Zealand, we did a whole bunch of desk research and discovered that there were just giant holes in the data about women, like huge gaping mm. holes. Yeah. So we commissioned um, a really big piece of research on into the economic and emotional lives of women, and we asked 160 questions of over you know over a thousand women here in New Zealand and 3,000 in Australia, and what we found was women are in crisis. feel unsafe, 74% feel really high levels of anxiety, only 25% of women feel loved. We also discovered that we are the most educated we've ever been. Um, We are, you know, earning more money than we ever have in the history of time, you know, in the history of the world, and yet 91% of women say that marketers don't understand them. That they just we, we do not feel seen or do we, we do not feel recognised. Our concerns are never placed front and centre in the terms of either developing policy or products or services um, within the you know within the marketing world. We most ad agencies are run by men. Most creatives are men. Yeah, most are, campaigns will be most, made by men. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have a set of men deciding how women should be represented. Yeah. 
there's, I think it's globally only 3% of agencies, creative agencies are run by women. Mm. Like this is an alarming stat. We also know that there's kind of like seven different tropes in terms of advertising that women are often grouped into, like, for example, the domestic obsessive, someone who is unnaturally energised by domestic cleaning products. We see them as a bit part where you only really see parts of their body. You know, like, there's all of this stuff. And my thinking is, like, how is that creative? Like, how is that being creative when you're just using the, the same, same old voice exactly yeah nothing new no nothing new so when we got our research back you know we really were shocked by how grim everything <laughs> it's crazy. is that 28 was it 28 percent that doesn't feel loved 25 25 yeah. yeah that feels like that's quite shocking I mean, I don't know. I, I probably live in a feminist bubble. Yeah. And we also run something called the Ace Lady Network, yeah. which is a 7,000-strong online network of women across the world, you know, and we, we are unashamed, unashamedly feminist in our content and our outlook there. So we are kind of, you know... We're, yeah, we're like, yeah, woohoo, let's do it. We're feeling quite empowered. Um, but then when we got this research back, we were like, whoa, if this was any other group, there would be a national inquiry. You know, there would be a task force set up. But because it's women, it doesn't matter. And then, you know, we really sat there with our head in our hands for, you know, about about four months just going, shit, what can we do? This is really grim. And then we kind of went, okay, well, let's use the skills that we've got. Let's actually kind of bring our creativity to bear on this. So we what we've done is we've developed nine different personas that best represent Australian and New Zealand women based on our research. And um, so we bring those personas to life and using theatre yeah. and using humour because it's the best way in yeah. for this kind of difficult conversation. Yeah. And then we work with businesses and go, okay, well, like they might say, oh, we want to appeal to women. We're like, awesome. Women are not a homogenous group. Yeah. Let's have a look at which <laughs> group, type, of women? Which type <laughs> yeah. of women might be the best for you to think about. Um, and we run a workshop called Winning Women's Business where we'll get a whole group of people across a business together. We introduce them to three of our personas. We ask them to think about how are you connecting with her, how are you making her feel confident in her either purchasing decision or decision to work with you, how are you making her feel inspired, and how are you making her feel appreciated. And because they're characters based completely on you know all of the all of the research, um, people ask them questions, and it's much easier to engage with these with these personas and we say okay well what's something you could do today in your teams or in your business that would make this woman's life easier everyone can think of things and then we go okay well what's something that needs to change in a systemic manner and there's always something and then there's like what's something that is going to take a long time but you're committed to it and so we really take people on that journey and then um, if they're working with us on a campaign basis, then we do that anyhow. We're like, okay, which is, who, who, who's this campaign targeted to? Why do they care about it? What do they need? Why should they give a shit about this? Exactly. They're really busy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like mums on average. <laughs> yeah, I mean mums on average have 10 minutes of me time a day and that does not include going to the toilet. Lots of people go, is going to the toilet me time? I'm like, no, that's... <laughs> 
that's that's, that's actually yeah, yeah. something you need to do. But for a lot of mums, that is what it is. Like yeah. you go to the toilet for a break. <laughs> no, I certainly have. <laughs> so what are some of the proudest work that you and your team have done? I think one of the campaigns that we've really enjoyed working on has been a campaign in Australia with a superannuation company. Oh, you won some prizes for that one, We right? did. We yeah, just won I saw um, that. That was amazing. creativity and marketing at the Australian Marketing Institute. Yeah. Not bad for a little well agency. Yeah, well from Wellington. We were like, Working oh on the God. stats to get more females up there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, and it also won a big prize at The Hague recently um, around innovation and communication of financial products. Um, we started this campaign. Well, what happened was that our client realized that all of the people in their superannuation fund were women. Mm. And they also realized that women were retiring into poverty. And they felt a real duty of care to do something for their staff, I mean, for their members and for their staff. And we know that as soon as you talk about superannuation, people basically fall asleep. They are so disinterested in this. Yeah. So um, far away. And it's also ta- it's often framed around um, scarcity and negativity. So like, just don't have that coffee this week um, and put that money in your superannuation, which... For a lot of women, hearing that message is basically give up the one tiny piece of joy in your life and if if you can't do that, then you're bad. Yeah. So we were like, we're going to totally reframe this. We're going to kind of go for a much more abundance mentality. We'll make it fun. They developed a product which is essentially every time you shop, you go shopping for your groceries, et cetera, whatever savings that you make like you would make with a loyalty card, those savings go directly into your superannuation account. So over time, you are putting lots of little bits into your superannuation, but over time it compounds, and by the time you retire, you might have an extra 20000 dollars in your account Mm. which for a lot of women is massive so we you know we really took them on a big journey and we went on a big journey ourselves to really understand Australian women and what motivates them and used our research and our insights and used all of our creativity and humor and created um super super which is the product I just mentioned. And we took that to market this time last year. Three million people to the site at launch, 20% increase in the superannuation fund, huge number of people signed up and still using the product. So women's lives are really changed because of it. And one of the reasons that we worked on this product and really helped them hone it was for a lot of women, when you're on maternity leave or caring for others, you're not able to contribute to your superannuation but this way we always have to buy groceries we always have to buy stuff so this is a way of kind of not asking people to change their behavior or give something up it's just like we're going to reward you for doing what you do anyhow and you're going to be able to save into your superannuation account that's great yeah that's when you use marketing and advertising in the best kind of way to actually benefit people Totally. And, and, I mean, and I think, educate them too, in a way. Yeah. I mean, it is a, you know, often I've thought about like, oh my God, what are we doing? This is just capitalism mm. gone rampant. But we do have a set of, like a really values driven business. So we're not going to work with people. Like we do turn people away if we're like, sorry, this is just totally against our co-papa. Yeah. We don't want to do that. Yeah. The other campaign that we're really proud of, which was one that we did sort of at the start of Double Denim, was getting equal pay for caregivers. And it was called Treat Her Right. And we got 400 women 
in Auckland, having their Beyonce moment, dancing in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, caregivers got equal pay. So, and, and, you know, our campaign was a small part of that, but we really love those kind of briefs. So thinking about or talking about advertising marketing, we're entering a new decade next year. 2020. I know. And a lot of things have already happened. If you look back on like, you know, 10 years, we didn't have Instagram, you mm. know, like the whole, the whole um, environment around marketing and advertising has changed quite drastically mm. in the last 10 years. What do you think will be the next change? People want connection and we find that some of the things that we do that are kind of old school marketing get a much better cut through rate than digital stuff. I think there's going to be a real shift toward thinking in a much more holistic way and thinking about how digital platforms can actually really connect with people rather than being a broadcast channel, which I know is already happening. But People want connection, you know. There's five things that across all of the data that we had, women said they wanted, which was respect, love, value for money, more time, and connection. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how that works, and I'm interested in the role that marketing and communications plays in that, mm. and I'm interested in what communities need to feel less, people to feel less isolated and alone because we have this crisis of loneliness. And I think brands are are much more aware of their social purpose and and why that's important and why consumers want that. Especially with the next generation. Absolutely. Like they all value based on your... Your, um, what you do for good and how you're giving back and, you know, they're all yeah. about the values. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to retain, businesses and brands are not going to retain staff, let alone get staff if they're not thinking about this stuff. So I, I, I don't know, maybe it's naive, but I really see that there's, there will be more of a, a kind of corporate responsibility actually becoming something that is more than just a buzzword mm. or a strategy in a yeah. drawer. And I'm hoping that agencies like mine will be able to be part of that. Yeah. Mm. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I like just it's give us heaps of work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also think that um, I also think that there's a there's a bit of a backlash for a lot of people around kind of this always on and you know digital detoxes are much more common and yeah it's kind of like the internet has been really powerful and really useful but it's also so much bullying and you know so I think there's a kind of like we all kind of went into it as like woohoo this is amazing. Now we said to now we had to set the framework for it. Yeah, no I think there's yeah. people are thinking a bit more critically about it and what does this mean and and you know going back to that kind of cognitive behaviour change and the how technology can also often be used to kind of create addictive behaviours. And I think policymakers are catching up with that. And, you know, as we've seen with, you know, Facebook and others, to go, hang on a second, what what is our role as a government in ensuring that our populations are not becoming addicted to this thing, yeah. which is, you know, the cart, the exactly. horse's bolted type yeah. thing. But I think it's really interesting to see where that goes. Yeah. How would you define success? <laughs> um, for me, that sort of changes every day, to be honest. <laughs> 
like today I'm kind of like I just want to not be really tired um, <laughs> just want uh, some more sleep <laughs> I just want some more sleep uh, I met a friend last night and we had a long conversation about letting go and understanding that that's the biggest gift ever is to actually kind of just let a lot of stuff go, let go of your ego, let go of trying to force something when it's not there, understanding your part or understanding my part and any kind of mistakes I've made um, and then just letting that go. And I do, I've been on a really big journey in terms of uh, understanding more of that and realising and knowing, you know, from, from various experiences like being you know, almost dead in the middle of the ocean, that um, this too shall pass, you know, like bad things happen, but it, you will, they will pass and I will get through them and it's how I conduct myself in the time that these things are happening and what can I do that I can act with dignity and kindness and clarity and courage and compassion. Mm. So that for me is success at the moment. It feels like really healthy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I hope so. How do you think we can empower more women to become leaders and start businesses and maybe start more agencies doing great things? Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff around, like, if you, you can't, if you don't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I have this thing with leadership, you know, there's such a focus on, like, everyone needs to become a leader. I'm mm. like, ah. Do we need more leaders? You know, like, <laughs> you're just gonna uh, end up leading yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's kind of how we define what leadership is, really. You know, if it is, as I was talking before about actually becoming really cognizant and aware of who you are as a person and your skill sets and and your limitation. So more having like a growth mindset. Yeah, kind yeah. of a growth mindset is, I think, more interesting to me than having yeah. more leaders. Yeah, yeah I, I sort of struggle with that that term. Um, I think women make fantastic entrepreneurs. I think, you know, we know that f so many, um, you know, there's not a lot of venture capital given to women entrepreneurs. We certainly know that from our business. Um, but we're really, you know, women actually, all the research shows that women make better profits, etc. But it's weird that that also had kind of shift to it. So going the other way. So used to be that more women get elected to boards and, you know, high leadership positions. And now it's actually the data shows that it's going down the other way. Yeah, I mean, what is, is going what, on? Yeah, I was like, how could that even happen? <laughs> I think we have to free ourselves from this myth of the meritocracy. Yeah. You know, um, I did this amazing online course called Feminist Business School, by which is run by this woman called Jennifer Armburst mm. at sister.is. And I think that has been the most profound piece of learning I've done in a very long time. Mm. And when I think about our business and when I think about leadership and when I think about how do we encourage more women into business it's thinking about what are those traditionally feminine kind of qualities of collaboration of cooperation of finding ease of being in nature all of those things how do we create businesses with those things at the heart of it mm -hmm. instead of the kind of masculine qualities of you know Jacob growth and all this sort of bullshit because um, that to me is not success like that is not success I do not want to be at my work 
24 hours a day. Talking about the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I love talking about the numbers, but I don't want, like, that is not success. For me, it's like, am I living a balanced life? Am I able to be in nature as often as I can be? How how am I using my body? Am I strong? Am I healthy? Am I getting enough sleep? You know, all of that sort of stuff is actually success. Yeah. And she really talks a lot about these 12 um, principles of feminist business of creating a feminist business and number one is you have a body and and number 12 is a business can be a way a, a, a business can be a chain oh hang on I've got it because I have it in my, in oh, my you yeah <laughs> so it's kind of about um, a feminist business can model new ways of living working and being together and it's about transforming our relationship to money, to work, to the earth, to our bodies, to each other. And these 12 principles for prototyping a feminist business, as I said, are number one, you have a body. And number 12, a business can be a model for a new social and economic order. So I suppose the thing that I'm more interested in is how do we, as women, bring all the skills that we have to create a new social and economic order? Because currently the one we're working within and the paradigm we're working within is completely ruining our planet. It is. And and we're not progressing. Exactly. At a, in a way that is bringing equality and justice. I'm not really interested in always participating within that. And I think, I suppose with Double Denim, we're always going, well, how can we move the dial here? What can we do to bring about a new social and economic yeah, order? it's great. So what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Start saving. <laughs> Honestly, financial literacy for women that is our big thing that we're working on next year. I would say compounding interest is your friend. Just put some money aside. Put it into KiwiSaver. Start now. That would be the biggest piece of advice I would give my 20-year-old self. And your 30-year-old self, what advice would that be? I mean, I think for a lot of women in their 30s or, you know, late 20s, early 30s, it's the kind of conversation you have in your head around motherhood, around love, around whether you, you know, do you, that validation of what it means to be a young woman. And so often in our society, it's around, do you have a partner? Are you going to have kids? And I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really think about it. I was like, I did want to have a partner and I did want to have children, Um And I think to my 30-year-old self, I'd just say, be strategic, you know, don't, you know, be, be open, but also be strategic. (laughs) Yeah. And to my 40-year-old self, I would say, go for it. It's like, now's the time. So if you could give one piece of advice to someone that might want to start something new, what would you tell them? You just quit your job. Number two. <laughs> your friend's like, let's start it. <laughs> yeah, to be really honest, I would say start with some capital. It just makes life so much easier. I mean, that has always been the thing that's held Anna and I back is that we started with nothing. And, you know, we've made it work and we're both, you know, very proud of our business acumen. But honestly, if you have some, like, have some money behind you, it just enables you to have so many more options. And that has been my really big lesson in my 40s is actually to lose my fear of money and learn the language of money. And there's millions of great ideas, but they don't happen by magic. Yeah. And also I think... You know, I've started probably about th- three businesses now. You know, I started a dating agency as well and, um, you know, the bitches and and this. So 
you know, often businesses fail within the first year and we're still going strong after four years. So, you know, take the time to set it up and also like if realize what you're not good at. And like, so we pay a really great accountant. We pay for a really great financial advisor and we pay for a really fantastic mentor Mm. because we were like, the other things that we need help with. Don't think that you have to do be good at everything. You don't have to be expert at yeah. everything. Yeah. And, and that's where it's like, make sure you've got some capital to pay for those people. Yeah. And yeah, set up all the tech stuff well. You know, it's it's the boring shit because you're like, I just want to go and do this and save the world or whatever and totally go for it. But kind of get your house in order. Yeah. Because if you haven't done that and the tax bill arrives and you're like, <laughs> it's all over and then you can't yeah. keep, you know, exactly. changing the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Be strategic. Great. So the last question, what do you think we can do tomorrow to come closer to a more equal world? I think we have to start taking the personal out of it and really look at the systems. Mm. And I think so often in this conversation around equality, what happens is people say, but I'm not a sexist or I'm a really nice guy or I'm a really great person. And it's like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the systems that we currently have in place, which are oppressing most of the population of the world that are ruining our planet. We have to, we have to move beyond the personal and into the systemic. Yeah, that's great. I agree. (laughs) Thank you so much for meeting with me, Angela, today. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Girl Power Pod. My name is Susanne Axelson. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and please give it a five-star rating. You can also follow Girl Power Pod on Instagram. It would really mean a lot to me to hear your thoughts on today's episode. So please email girlpowerpod at gmail.com. I would love to get your feedback and I respond to every email. In the next episode, we are talking to the CEO of Spark, Julia Hudson. We talked about how you build a strong leadership team that can adapt to the fast-changing world of digital services and what the future digital trends that we should be really excited about, plus much more. So don't miss out.